Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 14 of the Lacrosse Word Podcast. Today, here with me, I have Sister Emily Whitney. Uh, how are you doing today, Sister Whitney? Good. Thank you so much, Sam, for having me. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, it's a beautiful day outside. There have been quite a few bugs, uh, and like mosquitoes and stuff, but I managed to get out this morning before the Excellent. rain came. So. <laughs> Oh, those mosquitoes. We do have some. We do have some mosquito issues in the state, don't we? Oh, definitely. Uh, so, uh, getting right in, uh, I'll go into our first ba- baseline questions. Uh, so, what motivates and inspires you? Why do you get up in the morning? You know, um, as I was thinking about that question, I was trying to decide what are those major motivators in my life, um, and I, I really liked. Um, Sister Fauché's answer, um, that first part of her answer where she said food was a motivator for her. Um, And I think that's a a good motivator for me too. But I think um, in general, one of the things that motivates me is being a helper. So I was always um, a fan of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood growing up, right? And he always talked about finding helpers. So uh, at some point in time, uh, my parents had a conversation with us about sometimes we have to be the helpers. So I think that that is is one of my motivations is being a helper. I think that has um, impacted many of the decisions that I've made in my life. And I think that's one of the things that helped me choose my career in public health was um, because it's a, it's such a helping field. So I think being a helper is is one of the things that motivates me most. Yeah, very nice. Uh, so this might like based off of that, I know helping can be a gateway into how people can really uh, build their own testimony. But in your life, how have you confirmed the teachings and doctrine of the church? Um, you know, Sam, um, I think I, um, uh, I might just barely beat out your father with the gift of weeping, but I think it's going to be a close call. So I am afraid I'm going to end up getting teary-eyed throughout this entire podcast. Um, So I think at some point in time, your dad and I need to have a gift of weeping contest. I don't know if we can, I don't know if we can make that happen. Um, But when I think about applying the things that I have learned in the gospel, um, just to every day, it's, it is all sorts of small things um, that I see every day in my work, and at church that helped me develop a testimony. Um, So small things that I've seen come to pass because of paying tithing, um, because of small everyday prayers being answered. Those things have added to my testimony. And um, those things happen, you know, while I'm at school and in the middle of teaching, as well as at times where I'm fasting and um, around other members of the ward. So in terms of um, developing um, my testimony and applying the principles of the gospel. It's something that I try to do every day. Um, one of our, and I can't remember who it is. I'm so sorry. Um, past prophet said that testimonies are as elusive as sunbeams or moonbeams, as elusive as moonbeams. And oftentimes, um, you know, one day you have a testimony of something and the next day is really tough. And it just feels like that testimony isn't as strong as it was once before. So I think our testimonies are ever evolving. And every day, there may be something truly um, small, but unique that helps to uh, re-solidify a testimony of a different gospel principle. So I think every day is just that commitment to to wake up and to see what happens and, and how the testimony can be developed. So that's kind of how I ap- apply those gospel principles every day. It's a it's an everyday um, get up and try it type of scenario and applying um, everything that I learn in church, in my job at home, and the way I treat, treat people in the community, um, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, very good. Um, I will say, uh, I, I think your crying makes it even more genuine. Um, and if you are looking at having a contest with my father, it doesn't take much at all to get him to cry. So I, I think you'll be in the, the clear shot if <laughs> if you like, want to go there. <laughs> I, I feel like he could he would be able to create some sort of game show where we could have a gift of weeping contest. Oh, absolutely. That is actually the purpose of why he became a ward activities director 
that's like in his notebook uh, of, of future ideas. So I don't know. That's, that's so awesome. I might just have to get like your tear ducts ready for future. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, I I appreciate your father's gift of weeping um, very much. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much for those thoughts. Uh, genealogy is important in the church. What do you know about your name and family history? Um, well, I was named after my uh, grandmother on my mother's side. Her name was Emma Arita uh, Beebe, and then she was Emma Arita Archibald. And so I was named Emily Arita um, after uh, my grandma and a great grandma. The word, the name Emily actually means industrious um, and Arita um, is Greek and depending on the context, um, it can mean virtuous, excellence or righteous. And then Whitney means white island. So I'm an industrious, virtuous, white island apparently is, is kind of where my name comes from. And then from the genealogy side of things, um, on my mom's side of the family, we have a lot of BBs and Pages and Godfreys and Rossers. And on my father's side are Whitney's, Taylor's, um, Johnson's, and um, Olferstetter's. And um, my, uh, I believe it's my fifth great grandpa, Godfrey, was one of the first converts when the missionaries went over to England to start teaching the gospel. And um, as they were teaching in England, of course, you know, there was a lot of country controversy surrounding the gospel. And uh, after uh, my great, 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 great grandpa was um, baptized and his family was baptized, uh, he went back to work that following Monday and he was, he was an estate manager. So he worked for, I don't know if it was a lord or a baron, but they had this giant estate in England. And um, my uh, grandfather was the one in charge of running that estate. And um, he was questioned by the owner and, and said, hey, we heard that you have become, you know, one of those Mormons. And is that true? And he said, yes, you know, I was baptized into the church. And he said, well, you need to give that up if you want to stay working for me. And he said, I can't because I believe this to be true. And he was fired. And it was, you know, at that period of time where um, there wasn't a lot of, of work options for women. He had a fairly large family. And um, so everybody in the family had to kind of band together and, um, you know, sell eggs and uh, do mending and other kinds of things to bring in a little bit of money for the family. So there was, a month or two of some some real struggle um, in terms of finances um, because it was difficult for them to be hired anywhere because they had converted to the church. And then the, the landowner came back to my grandpa and said, hey, so as it turns out, um, nobody knows how to run my land particularly well and everything is falling apart. I really don't care what church you're a member of please come back and work for us because um, we need you desperately. Um, so um, their prayers were answered and he was able to get his job back and they spent the next um, couple of years saving um, money so that they could eventually immigrate to the United States and move closer to um, where everybody else was in the church at that time. So that was um, one of the stories on my mom's side of the family. And then on my father's side, um, we are my fifth great grandfather on my father's side of the family is Newell Kimball Whitney, um, who you know was the first bishop of the church and um, who we've been learning about a little bit in um, the Come Follow Me manual as we're studying um, those home lessons at the Doctor and Covenant. So um, everybody knows a little bit about him, and um, over the years uh, we've heard. Um, you know, all of those stories that we're, we're reading about, about Newell Kimball Whitney and how, um, you know, Joseph Smith showed up on their doorstep right? and he opened the door and was like, Hey, you know, how are you? Um, and Joseph Smith's like, you've prayed me here, brother Whitney. And he's like, who, who are you? So um, it's kind of on both sides of our family. Um, we have folks who were introduced to the church um, pretty early on and um, either immigrated or were here um, in the newly forming United States um, and then were pioneers um, coming over across the plains. So there's 
there's a little bit of history there. I think a little bit is is an understatement. That is very cool. So lots of historical roots, um, even with like church history. So very, very cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what is one thing that you would say is unique about you? Oh, so this is a question that I have thought a lot about. And over the years, I've even um, asked my students these kinds of questions because um, it's important for us to kind of think about what kind of characteristics and talents we bring um, bring to the table. And I've never really had a great answer. And I've asked people before what makes me unique. And usually the answer I get is um, you're nice, but weird. And so when we've tried to define what the the weird portion of that is uh, ever really been able to describe it particularly particularly well. Um, a couple of students have said that it's more about being eclectic rather than um, like completely weird. Um, and um, a couple other folks have described that weirdness as just being somebody who likes to learn a lot about a lot of different things and, and has a lot of knowledge and gets excited about, you know, everything from documentaries to sci-fi. And so um, I guess I'm just a, I'm a big giant weirdo, Sam. I'm a big giant nice weirdo. So that's, that is what is unique about me. I, I espouse a lot of different characteristics where I am from anyone in the ward who knows me um, I talk entirely too much, and at the same time, I can be a good listener. Um, and I do have a lot of just really strange knowledge about all sorts of different things. I was the kid that read the dictionary. I thought it. So I'm just kind of I'm just kind of weird. That is what is unique about me. I'm just a little bit of a of a weirdo. Yeah, I will say. Um... In my elementary school days, I did try and read the dictionary, um, but my school actually had a policy that you couldn't check one out uh, because they didn't want students reading the dictionary. So I would ride on the same train as you, but I mean, you know, sometimes there are there rules in the way. <laughs> there are the rules in the way. And that was the uh, problem for me in uh, middle and elementary school, too. And um, my parents actually got me a dictionary for Christmas, and that's how... That is how that came about. That's what I wanted for Christmas one year was a dictionary. Okay. So it's just, it's all about finding workarounds. Yes. And it kind of probably lends a little bit to why people say I am nice but weird. So, yeah. I'll have to look into that, those those possibilities there. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, so now on to our rapid fire segment. Okay. Uh, if you could serve a mission anywhere in the world, where would it be? Greece. Greece. Uh, can you tell us more about like Greece, why you would choose that location? You know, I, I didn't really necessarily know a whole lot about Greece and um, our Greek culture. And when I was living in Cheyenne, Wyoming with my mom for a couple of years, they have a Greek festival. And my mom said, let's go, let's go to the Greek festival this year. And I was like, all right. So um, we went to the Greek festival and um, got to try all sorts of amazing traditional Greek foods and um, talk to people about um, different traditions in Greece. Um, we got to see traditional dances and um, learn about history. And it was just it was just really lovely um, and not something you would necessarily expect to find in the middle of Cheyenne, Wyoming in July. Um, and I just, it, it, uh, we got to see, you know, people were showing us pictures of, uh, of Greece and um, different places um, in that area and the islands and all of those kinds of things. Anyway, it was just, it was really fascinating and interesting and so much fun um, to talk to people and learn about their history and learn about culture and just try all of these um, amazing foods. And so I think that is what kind of spurred me into wanting to know a little bit more um, about Greece and, and thinking that it would be a really neat place or serve a mission. Um, so that's, that's I, I got to go to a festival in Cheyenne, Wyoming and, and learn about Greece. So that's where that started from. Absolutely. I think the cultural immersion of being in Greece would also be very significant uh, in terms of like what you could learn. So excellent yeah. choice. Yes. Uh, do you have a favorite word? Yes, I do have a favorite word. It is kerfuffle. K-E-R-F-U-F-F-L-E. Kerfuffle. Um, and it means 
kerfuffle. It means, I know it's fun to say, right? Kerfuffle. Oh, what? Oh, go ahead. No, you go. Um, It is, it means uh, conflict. So, um, and usually a conflict in a difference of opinion. So it's one of those words that's just really fun to use when um, there is some chaos going on and I've come into classes saying, I'm sorry, I'm late. There was a kerfuffle upstairs. It's just, it's a very useful word. I never thought conflict could sound so like fun and up upbeat. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It makes it it makes it sound a little bit more upbeat. The conflict it really does, and it's just fun to say. So um, that's one of my favorite words, and I have used it in classrooms before. And it's not one that everyone has heard. Um, so I get to introduce students to to that word as well, and that's kind of fun. I think paying for a full college like education is worth it if you come out knowing how to use the word kerfuffle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, what's a place you've been that you would recommend to others? Oh, that's a good question. I, um, there's, there are probably t- several. Um, I really love Washington, D.C., Um, so I just, it's just such a neat place with so many, um, different historical aspects to it. And, um, it's one of my favorite places to visit. So I've been a few times and I've, um, been there on, um, business for conferences and I've been there a few times with family and there's just so much to see from the Smithsonian, um, to all of the monuments. I think one of my favorite places is the spy museum. And then also the um, U.S. Postal Service Museum. That's not necessarily a place that people would think to go, but it's just amazing. You get to see um, and read about, you know, how the Pony Express started. And um, then they have this just really amazing museum with all sorts of different stamps and you can buy stamps. And um, I I love the Postal Museum. I think it's just pretty cool. So I really enjoy Washington, D.C. And I think if if people have the opportunity to go and visit um, Washington, D.C., that would be pretty it's it's pretty fantastic. And I also really like um, Victoria, Canada. Um, I got to go there a couple of different times and there's just some really amazing hiking and biking and kayaking and whitewater rafting. And it's just really beautiful. And, and in Victoria, it sort of looks um, the way that the architecture is, it's very much kind of um, represents England in certain aspects. And so it's fun to go and see some of the, um, the architecture and, and things in some of the buildings out that way. So I would, I would recommend those two places for sure. Sure. We've been to Washington, DC, but we haven't been to the the U.S. Postal Museum or the Spy Museum. So I think we need to go for a round two and hit those locations. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm quite intrigued. I think you could work as a as a like a salesperson there and try and get people to come and entice them to come to those museums. So I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I and this I think you would really enjoy the Spy Museum. It really is the history of um, how spying began clear back in the 15-1600s and how women were used as spies and they have all of the different um, kinds of spy gear that was used throughout different periods of time. Um, it was actually a place, my mom, my mother has always been a huge fan of um, spy novels and spy TV shows I Spy um, was a TV show that was on in the 70s um, with um, Robert Colt. Anyway, uh, going to that museum was one of her things that she wanted to do in DC. And so um, I share that love of of spy things with my mother. And so it was just a really fun place to go and and see this history. And and I got a sweatshirt out of it that says, trust no one that I think is fantastic that I wear frequently so it's good oh very good I I think that's definitely very intriguing um if you had to play one sport what would it be hockey hockey Hockey. uh what what if you had to choose like a place to go and play that where would you want to represent uh I would probably be a Vancouver Canuck because that is my favorite team so the thing is, I, um, I'm a horrible skater, um, and I can't stay up 
to save my life. So I, I will never actually be able to play hockey, but I think it's this beautiful sport with a hint of violence. And I like both of them. Um, and, um, I just, I love hockey. I started when I was an undergrad in college and then um, I developed a love for the Canucks. Not that we don't love the Minnesota Wild for all of the Minnesota Wild fans out there. We love the Minnesota Wild too, but I wasn't in this region to develop the love of Minnesota Wild um, before I, you know, developed my love of the Canucks. So there's that. Yeah. So, well, you know, if you play hockey in Minnesota, you have to get a mullet. That is the style as you get like, <laughs> the long like Kentucky waterfall you know, yeah. all streaming down the back of your neck um, and it is disgusting but it's in the pretty... front, already in the back <laughs> absolutely uh, in order what cities have you lived in in order um, I have lived in Logan Utah uh, let's see remember this Logan Utah Carbondale Illinois uh, Ellensburg Washington Cheyenne, Wyoming, and then here in uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin, on Alaska, I guess, technically. So you sort of darted around all the different sections of the country then, huh? Yeah, I grew up um, in Logan um, and did uh, uh, my undergraduate and graduate degree there and then left for Carbondale, Illinois to do my PhD work and was there for about three and a half years. And then I took a job, which brought me up to Ellensburg, Washington, and I worked at Central Washington University for a couple of years. And then we had some layoffs. And then um, my mother had moved to Wyoming at that point. So I went and stayed with my mom for a while. And then um, so I was in Cheyenne. I say Cheyenne, Cheyenne, Wyoming for a while and then um, moved here to to or to um, La Crosse. Forgot where I was, Sam. That's not a good sign. <laughs> uh, what's a time when you've laughed really hard? Um, actually, Sam, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I I fell um, in front of like twenty people at the mall. Um, it was a I I hit a, a large crack in the pavement. Um, and I ended up spraining my ankle and I did this spin and this twist and this fall. And whenever I um, injure myself, I tend to laugh. And so for 20 minutes, I was um, lying down on the pavement just in fits of giggles because it was really funny. I did not stick the landing. There was there was no 8.5 for my landing. And um, it was the whole situation was just really funny. And when I'm in pain, I laugh too. So um, just three weeks ago, I was just um, lying down, lying down because I fell um, on the pavement right in front of the mall and just laughing hysterically about the whole situation. And I'm sure people thought that I was a little bit nutty, which adds again to the whole weirdo thing. Um, and I just I couldn't stop laughing. I couldn't I couldn't stop laughing about it. So um, that would be that would be the last time that I just really laughed hard for for no particular reason other than slight pain and uh an embarrassing situation i will say that no answer uh has ever come close to that nor do i think another episode will have any answer that will lead to something like that so you can take pride that you're probably like the first and only person who will say that they laugh really hard when they're in pain um I'd, I'd take pride in that uh, if I were you, but. <laughs> Thank you, I do. And it, it happens every time. And so then the, the tricky part is people can't tell if I'm really in pain or if I'm okay. But the reality is if I'm laughing really hard and it looks like I'm in pain, the harder I laugh, the more pain I'm actually in. So yeah, it's I, it's just, it's it's how I react to pain and it's, it, and it is kind of funny. So, you know, it's a, it's a twofer. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite activity to do in lacrosse? You, that's a really good question too. I, um, I've loved listening to everybody's answers and hearing about different places people like to hike and to bike, um, and to go trail walking. And to be honest, I have, I have not taken the time, I think is the best way to phrase that, um, to go and, um, find trails and do those kinds of things. Um, mostly because I, um, I seem to work a lot, so I just I haven't really done a very good job of taking advantage of all that 
um, lacrosse in this area have to have to offer. So I think at this point, some of the the fun things that I have done with friends is um, uh, going to friends' houses for lunch and kind of sitting out on their patios and um, you know just kind of enjoying some really lovely backyards that some of my my friends have. But I. Um, I love with these podcasts because I'm learning all of these different um, places and things to do in lacrosse. So I'm taking notes on them and I, I need to go look at some of the trails and things that people have been talking about. Absolutely. Uh, what's a positive childhood memory that you have that like sticks out? Um, I am very blessed in that I have a lot of positive childhood memories. I think um, one of the the ones that um, sticks out the most is my um, I come from a his mine and ours or her mine and ours family. My my father had four children from his first marriage. My mom had one son from hers, and then my parents married and had myself and my little sister. And my father um, had custody of his kids for many years before he met my mom. And he discovered a love of cooking. And after he married my mom, he continued to cook. So my dad made all of our evening meals, um, like Monday through Sunday, all seven days of the week, um, and Sunday dinners and everything too. So I think some of my favorite memories are of my dad. Um, when he gets home from work, cooking was a stress management tool for him. So he loved creating things with food. And it just kind of helped him um, unwind from his days. So he would be in the kitchen and he'd be um, humming a song and kind of dancing around the kitchen as he was cooking. So I think that's um, probably one of my favorite memories from my childhood is just really watching the excitement that my dad had as he cooked and um, how much he enjoyed doing that and, and creating these meals for our family. Um, and to be honest, and why I'm tearing up right now is because I, I miss that. Um, I miss uh, hearing him uh, hum his different tunes and sing his different songs and um, coming into our house um, in the evening, whether it's coming home from school or, you know, an orchestra practice or something and him cooking and just being so very excited about it. Um, when I worked at a, a nursing home, he would occasionally um, bring me dinner and some of my friends dinner um, down to the nursing home if he knew we had missed meals. And anyway, I just, I, I think that's probably one of my, my favorite childhood memories. If you keep on painting such beautiful imagery in my head, I think I'm going to start tearing up myself in my studio. Um, so <laughs> we'll see. We are just developing the gift of weeping in you, Sam. Your father, <laughs> I, and several others in the world, we're just going to help you develop this gift as well. It's, it's all conspiracy theory that that is the purpose. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, what is your go-to seat in the chapel? Um, it is the, the center back bench. And that's, so when I get to come to church with the SOA family and we have Colleen there, um, that bench works really well because um, her wheelchair fits in right there on the end. So when I'm with them, that is our absolute favorite place to sit. If I am on my own, it is the back bench on the left-hand side that's closest to the door. Okay, very good. Uh, if you could start a business, what would you sell? Uh, I think I would be a florist. Florist. Uh, do you have a favorite flower? I um, I love lilacs of, of all the flowers. My um, grandma um, in Idaho, um, they, they were farmers. And in her um, backyard, she used to have these, or by her back door, um, these lilac trees or lilac bushes, I guess, um, all across the back. And they were white and that light lavender um, color. And um, they just had this just wonderful fragrance to them. And she would um, cook these apple pies and place the apple pies on the windowsill to cool. And so there was this kind of combination of lilac and apple pie flavor. And so the smell of those lilacs brings back some, some really memories too. And I think that's why I think it would be fun to be a florist because you are, you know, even on somebody's worst day when you're putting together um, flowers for something uh, like a funeral or a sad event, you're still bringing a little bit of 
of um, beauty and joy to to maybe a tough day, as well as providing, you know, um, these beautiful flowers um, just every day to bring a little joy into people's lives. Yeah. Uh, would you rather live in an urban or rural setting? I want to be right in the middle. So I, I don't want to be in such, you know, a super, super large city because um, I think it's just a little bit too much noise. You can't really see the stars at night. And I don't want to be in a super rural area because I like being able to be close to um, activities and things like museums and those kinds of things. So I, it's a very Goldilocks scenario. I want to be in a just right size town. So somewhere kind of right in the middle of really urban and re really rural. And I, so I think like, I think this area kind of works a bit for that where we're close to places where we can be alone with our thoughts and quiet in these rural, rural areas and then still have access to, you know, being really close to, um, Madison and and uh, Minneapolis and larger cities and and just kind of kind of in the middle. We certainly don't have any access to any spy museums or anything. I wish maybe the lacrosse government would decide to put one in, um, but just fingers crossed. So I will help you with that campaign if you want to start it. I am all on board. Absolutely. Uh, if you start in a movie, what genre would it be? Um. So it would be a combination. <laughs> so I love, I love, um, I like, I like action movies, but I love um, uh, superhero movies, but I also love space movies. So I'm a fan of things like Star Trek and Star Wars and Doctor Who and Stargate. Um, but I love kind of action spy movies like uh, Red, the Bruce Willis movie um, that was, was called Retired and Extremely Dangerous and it, Red was the title of the movie. Um, I like it when things blow up. So it would be, it would be, I don't know what the, the title of the, the genre is because I also like, you know, a good murder mystery too. So I feel like it would be some sort of this murder mystery in space with lots of action and explosions. <laughs> Maybe you could like, just it would be one of those movies where the director can't quite decide what they want to do with the movie so they just switch it up a few times uh, yes that is exactly <laughs> it's clearly there's not a a, a a strong clear vision and purpose with my movie and it was <laughs> this giant hot mess but it would be fun to watch yes absolutely. absolutely uh if you had to live in one decade forever what would you choose uh i think it would be the 1920s the roaring 20s my grandma Whitney, my dad's mom, was a flapper, um, and we have all of these wonderful pictures of her in um, those great beaded flapper dresses with um, the short um, kind of Bob 1920s haircut. I think that um, right in the 20s, as you know, we're coming out of the um, depression and. Um, we're starting to see um, movements, you know, with women's rights to votes and all of those kinds of things, along with fashion and um, changing up food and just starting to see all sorts of different things in that in that time period. I think that would be um, just a really fun era. It would be a very difficult era. There were a lot of just really difficult things going on at that time as well. But I think that would be um, a really neat era to be a part of. Um, and I based part of that on, um, there's this lovely series called Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries that's set in the 1920s in uh, Australia. And the, the costuming and just um, the sets and things that they use um, in that show are just amazing. And it, it reminds me very much of uh, my grandma and her stories. And so I think that is definitely an era I would be really interested in living in. I will say that I think it would be thrilling to be able to join on the feminist movements and like the the Seneca Falls Women Conference that was in like the the 20s and the like stand on New York. I think that would be all so much fun to be part of. Right, absolutely. So I just, I, I absolutely agree with you on that. It would be really, really fantastic to be parts of those things. Uh, have you ever played a musical instrument? I have. I started out playing the piano 
and um, was not particularly spectacular at it because I couldn't seem to get my hands to move in two different directions at the same time while reading music. And then um, my brother played the cello, so I decided I wanted to play the cello too. So I played cello from fifth grade um, up through high school into college just a little bit and um, really have not played since. What did you enjoy most about both of those experiences? Um, I, you know, I thought it was really fun learning the piano. I have always liked um, piano concertos um, and listening to um, piano music. I love listening to all of um, our super talented folks in the ward um, that um, play the piano from, um, you know, Doris Foshe to um, Sister uh, Robinson. Um, they have just, you know, this great talent. All of, there's so many people in our ward that play the piano that are amazing. So I apologize for forgetting everybody, but um, I just, I really do enjoy listening to um, all of the amazing things that you can create from piano music. And I love the cello um, because I got to, there's, there are some really amazing um, uh, cello pieces out there Um just specifically for the cello, but I really enjoyed being part of the larger orchestra. We had a, an incredibly large orchestra in high school and middle school. We had about 120 um, members in our orchestra and we played in a lot of different competitions and um, our, our conductor, um, Ted Ashton, used to really push our orchestra. Um, he wanted us to play more at a, a college level and beyond. So. He was constantly presenting us with music that was really, really challenging. And it was fantastic because we got to win a lot of different competitions um, with one of our pieces, um, Fantasia on a String by Thomas Tallis. It's a really lovely piece of music. Uh, we we played it in a competition and um, one of the judges was from the, the conductor of the Utah Symphony and he was trying to figure out how we might be able to come and actually play with the Utah Symphony. We weren't able to ever time it right, but it was just really um, pretty awesome to know that the director of the Utah Symphony thought that our orchestra played well enough that um, he wanted to do some sort of co combined com concert with our with our high school orchestra. So I I really liked being part of that larger orchestra when I played the cello. That seems like lots of fun. Uh, if you grew a garden, what would your main crop be? Peas. It would be peas. Peas. Um, because you can eat the peas in the pod from the garden and. Um, and that is the best way to eat peas. Uh, we had peas in our garden growing up. And um, one of my favorite memories, too, would be uh, my mom and my little sister's dog, Shasta, would go out to collect all the peas. And usually um, between my mom and Shasta, the dog, they would eat all of the peas. So it was always it was always a race in our family to get out to the garden to get some of the, the peas to eat. So um, I surprisingly i'm not a huge fan necessarily of cooked peas because i think they get mushy and it's a little gross and i don't love the texture but i love um like sugar snap peas and so it would be it would be peas because then i could have them all to myself and i wouldn't have to share with my family oh uh, what are some of your current hobbies um oh i wish i had a good answer for this i um I tend to read a lot. So that's probably the thing that I do most um, hobby wise at this point in time. Um, I have started uh, doing some, some trail riding um, again. I used, to, I used to love mountain biking um, when I was in uh, my teens and my twenties, living in Logan, all of my really good friends, um, especially uh, my friend Corey was a couple of years older than me. He, worked at a bike shop and was very much into mountain biking. So I used to do a lot of mountain biking and that was something I really enjoyed as a hobby um, and had crashed multiple times. And so now it's not so much um, that I want to be mountain biking and coming down off of a mountain at 45 miles an hour because um, it hurts when you, when you come off your bike. So now it's a little, I'm getting back into a little bit of trail riding. So at this point, if sleeping counts as a hobby, it's sleeping and um, reading and then um, getting back into a little bit of, of trail riding. I'm, I'm guessing with your previous experiences in mountain biking, there's probably lots of laughing that oh, you remember. So much laughing, Sam. Um, you know you, uh, how people make, uh, for example, those, you can take a, a wire hanger and make a, a hot dog stick out of it. 
you know, untangle it and you can make a hot dog stick to roast hot dogs over a fire. No. People would- have you ever done that before? I I have not. I my immediate response is maybe to think of some like health code violations. Uh, but <laughs> so yes, this is a MacGyver version of how to make yourself a hot dog stick in Utah, and without fail, um, they get dropped and end up at different places on the trail. So coming out of Logan Canyon one time with some friends. Um, we were coming back out of some switchbacks and I was probably coming off the mountain at a good 45 miles an hour, um, in the spring and this, uh, uh, makeshift hot dog stick, um, was underneath a whole lot of leaves and I didn't see it. And so I hit it at just the right angle and it popped into my spokes, which stopped me and the bike immediately. And I went over the top. And then um, down off onto the side of a ravine and kind of slid in the snow and the ice and um, the, you know, the gush of the spring mud and all of that kind of fun stuff. And it, it completely wrecked the front of my bike. It wrecked me a little bit, too. And then I had to, um, you know, walk out with my bike another two miles. And my, the, the sad part was um, my friends had were a little bit ahead of me and they didn't see me fly off of my, off of my bike. I cracked my helmet too. It was pretty good. Um, and then I got to walk in there. I got down there like, what happened to you? What took you so long to get here? I'm, I'm covered in ice and snow and I have a road rash on both of my arms and I'm holding up this hot dog stick and they're like, ah, good ride for you. And I was like, yeah. So I, I, there was a lot of laughing, um, as I was stuck in this being by myself and trying to kind of climb out. Absolutely. Uh, sorry, pardon the dog barking in my background. <laughs> no worries. Um, do you have any fun traditions? Um, I think uh, um, it's a really good question. Do you have any fun traditions? I think when um, my uh, parents were alive and lived back in Utah closer to some of my um, nieces and nephews, and we would get together for different holidays and um, there would always be, um, uh, you know, uh, a, a Christmas Eve kind of party where we would all get together. And one of the traditions was to um, eat, you know, different types of food. So we would always have a kind of a Mexican night or a Chinese food night um, going into, you know, traditional Christmas dinners the next day. Um, so there were a lot of those kinds of um, family traditions. Um, living out here on my own, I don't do that n- quite as, as much. Um, so from a tradition standpoint, there, there are fewer traditions when I, um, kind of here on my own for holidays. Um, but when I go to visit, um, friends for holidays, I get to participate in a lot of their, um, family traditions. I, one family that I visit, um, for Christmas, uh, their family tradition is, um, watching a Christmas story, um, every year. So it, and to be honest, it wasn't a movie that was one of my all-time favorites, but having seen it now like nine times, um, it has definitely, um, definitely grown on me. So I, it's kind of fun being able to participate in other people's traditions and those traditions kind of being, uh, becoming part of my traditions too. Very fun. Uh, what's one life lesson that you've learned? Mm. When um, you can't, um, tell what a person is thinking by the look on their face. Um, when I was working on my PhD, I had to uh, give a presentation in front of my class. And the professor that was teaching was um, assessing it for our teaching skills. So this was a class on kind of pedagogy and how to engage students in classrooms. And as I was giving the presentation, Um, Her brows kept getting more and more furrowed, and the look on her face was just kind of quizzical and annoyed is what the the general look looked like. And so as I was kind of watching her, uh, my presentation started to devolve a little bit because I was trying to be, you know, witty and funny, and I lost sight of what I was trying to accomplish in um, the lesson. And anyway, we, we actually processed this stuff out as a group and she's like, what happened? You were doing really well. And then things really just sort of fell apart. And I was like, well, I, I was looking at your face and I could, I just thought you 
weren't liking what I was doing. So I was trying to, you know, change it up. And she's like, I just, I have resting ugly face. You can't tell what a person is thinking by what is on their face. She's like, never, you know, never go. You have to ask questions and check for understanding. And she's like, but don't judge people by what the look is on their face, because what a person looks like, you know, when you're just kind of there with that blank face um, is no indication of what a person is actually learning and processing and taking in as a key important point. And I have found that to be true in every aspect of my life. So I have tried really hard to not, you know, look at a person's face while we're I mean, I look at a person while we're talking, right? There's obviously eye contact, but try not to judge um, a person's facial expressions as to what they think about what I'm saying or what we're learning in class, those kinds of things. I think that was a really important lesson because um, over the years, there have been several times where, for example, at Central Washington, I had a student who I thought hated my class, absolutely hated it, um, based on what was on her face. And I just kept trying to remind myself of what I had learned from Dr. Fetro. And this student came in about mid-semester and sat down. And she's like, I just wanted you to know that your class is one of my favorites. And um, I learned these three things and I got to apply them and it was really fantastic. And she left and I was like, well, look at Dr. Fetro being right. Because again, I would have assumed that student hated my class based on her facial expressions in the room. So I think that's my, one of my important life lessons. Yeah. Uh, if you could speak one language, what would it be? Oh, um, Spanish. I think mostly because I had a Spanish teacher who told me I was terrible with Spanish diction. Like you, Sam, when you mentioned in a previous podcast, you struggle to roll your R's. I cannot roll my R's at all either. And so my, my teacher in high school told me I should give it up. And I think just to spite him, I would love to learn Spanish and do it really, really well. Yeah, I think um, I have I have German family. That's where I think a lot of my physical stuff comes up with. Uh, so I have fantastic, like that back of the throat stuff. Um, so when I, I plan to take German, uh, so I think that'll come handy. But I think some people just don't have the R's. And that's, I don't, I don't know if for me, there's ever overcoming it. Uh, I, I don't know that I can ever overcome it either, but part of me wants That's just to prove a point. I think you are taking a much smarter approach than mine and looking for a language that our, um, our voices and the way our speech patterns work works best with. So you're going to have to let me know how German goes. That's something I could work with too. I will. Uh, do you have a favorite dessert? Um... I love all of the desserts. Um, I have to say that I am not super particular with my desserts. I tend to gravitate towards things that are um, chocolatey. Um, so any kind of chocolate cheesecake or pie or you know anything with chocolate in it really will will suffice. And I I do not necessarily have a sophisticated palate, so it can be like any kind of chocolate, and I pretty much will I will eat it. Now, are you, when you say that, is that also accepting of dark chocolate? Absolutely. Dark chocolate is a beautiful thing, and we should all love that just a little bit more. I, I love, and white chocolate, too. Some people really are not fans of white chocolate, but I do like white chocolate as well. Like, I will eat them all. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you had to recommend any icebreaker question, what would it be? So I have, I have a couple, because depending on the situation that you're in, Sometimes um, you want to be a little bit more, I guess, formal for lack of a better term. So I might um, ask a person, like, what's the best piece of advice anyone has ever given you? In a situation where maybe it's a little less formal and um, I can tell, you know, uh, people are a little bit more relaxed. Um, then my question would be, who are, it's the zombie apocalypse. Who are your three people to help you um, survive the zombie apocalypse? Okay, uh, excellent choice. Uh, so then from last episode, uh, the question that we had was, what, in your opinion, is the best condiment? Oh, fry sauce. Fry and sauce. Fry sauce. And nobody outside of Utah knows what fry sauce is. It is, it is, it is a hill I'm willing to die on. It is not Thousand Island dressing. It is its own unique entity.
was started with Arctic Circle in Utah and fry sauce can be used on absolutely everything and it truly is the best condiment ever. Yes. So uh, in our family, we actually were exposed to fry sauce uh, from my mother before we even went to Arctic Circle. Um, so I feel like it's, it's slightly a different experience uh, at Arctic Circle, but I think it's totally, you get the same feeling when you make it at home. Uh, but I'd absolutely recommend that. So it's like ketchup and mayo, right? Yes. Two key ingredients. Okay. Ingredients. So. Have a brilliant mother, by the way, Sam. <laughs> she, that she exposed you to this early on. Okay. She is she is excellent mothering there. Excellent. I mean, it improved my life tenfold. Uh, but that is the complex recipe for anyone who is seeking that. Uh, I mean, I don't know. You have to have some really skilled baking uh focus but I don't know I I was fine without any of that baking knowledge but maybe some people need to so <laughs> exactly we'll have to find a good fry sauce recipe for everybody absolutely uh so now we're going on to the personalized segment uh so first first of all can you just tell us a bit about your job and what you do Sure. I am. I'm a professor of public and community health education at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. So um, my job is to help teach um, the undergraduate students skills of things like program planning, evaluation, grant writing, um, needs assessments to help look at what is going on within a community and then um, helping that community come together to um, better their health, whether it is um, an individual or um, as a community. And when we talk about health, we're talking about a very broad concept of health that includes mental and emotional health, intellectual health, financial health, um, as well as you know uh, dietary and physical health. So it's it's a it is a very holistic um, look at at health. And so the programs that um, students may be involved in when they graduate, um, really reach the gamut in terms of places that they might be working to improve improve health of folks, and in all of those in all of those different areas. So um, that's kind of uh, what my department does: is teach um, entry level health educators how to um, do their jobs at health departments and nonprofits in terms of helping people achieve. Um, different types of, of health health goals at, and, and whatever whatever they're looking at in health and that that also includes spiritual health as well so it's very it's a very holistic look at health okay uh, so has that like been at all affected then from from a covid standpoint in terms of uh, health education to the public yeah it has um, <laughs> uh, the covid the covid pandemic will provide a lot of case studies on what went well and what went really poorly for students to look at for years to come um, and one of the things that we definitely see coming out of the pandemic is um, uh, misinformation and disinformation and how that has impacted so many different communities across the nation and across the world uh, one of the things that I teach in my classes is a concept called health literacy, and that is specifically looking at um, things like numeracy literacy, scientific literacy, um, and then just general literacy in terms of presenting information in ways that people can interpret it and then be able to make the best decisions for themselves from that information. Um, and so for example, in, in Wisconsin, one in four Wisconsinites struggles with numeracy literacy, meaning when um, statistics are being presented, we don't really know what those statistics mean. And one in seven Wisconsinites struggles with um, general reading skills. So we're reading at a sixth um, to maybe eighth grade reading level. And when we're throwing out all of that COVID information, it was being presented um, at, you know, like a 16th grade reading level and above. And the problem with uh, the way a lot of the information was presented, it wasn't accessible to everybody. It wasn't written in a way that everybody could look at it and understand it and make sense of it. And then there was so much information coming at people from so many different directions that it was information overload. So, you know, we really saw um, from the health departments into our classrooms, really trying to help students figure out ways to create better, more effective communications and making information 
significantly more accessible. I example, if you you know talk to some of the physicians in our ward and the nurses, you know one of the things they try to do when they're working with patients is um, not talking medical ease, right? Presenting medical information in a way that everybody can understand it. And that same thing needs to hold true for information that's going out to um, everybody in terms of COVID. So we, we've seen we've seen some some really interesting really interesting things that um, we as a profession need to to do better at. Sure. Uh, what are some of your favorite parts about teaching? Um, I think my favorite parts are. Um, when I get to facilitate a conversation in class. So each student brings to the table their own unique perspective. And even though most of them have grown up here in Minnesota and Wisconsin, they all have you know, different um, traditions and grew up in different families and just really have different experiences. So when we come into a classroom and we're talking about concepts like health literacy and other, other things, um, everybody kind of brings in their unique experiences with it. And then having everybody be able to share those experiences and learn from other people's ideas and perspectives, it's just really um, fantastic to watch those conversations and how um, those types of conversations really um, help each student kind of grow and develop and um, broaden their perspectives on what's going on you know, within our field. and. And, and seeing them make connections that they hadn't made before um, with, you know, their their personal lives and their personal development with what's going on, you know, in the community and across the nation and globally. So and one of my favorite things about teaching is just um, helping people to see and grow those connections and see, see things from other people's perspectives and just help them figure out how to learn from other people. It's really one of my favorite things. Sure. So would you be like referring to Socratic sort of theme discussion? Yeah, 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 to a certain extent, yeah. Uh, what have you found most challenging about uh, teaching? Um, the grading. <laughs> so um, we are very much a, like many, many other types of um, programs out there. We're skills-based, and so um, our classes aren't, you know, three tests, and that's it for a semester. It's very much um, large projects, lots of writing, and it's a lot to grade. So I always feel really horrible because I am like 90% of the time you can text me and ask me what I'm doing and I will tell you I am grading and that happens in the summer too. I'm just, I'm always behind. I am always, always behind in my grading and I never feel like I am doing justice in terms of the feedback I'm giving to students. And so I always feel like that is an area that I desperately need to improve on. Um, so that's, I think that's one of the most challenging things is, is the grading and, and really giving substantive feedback in a timely manner. Cause there's just, there's a lot to grade. Yeah. I've, I've seen firsthand uh, the effects of lots of grading from educators in my own family. So I was going to say, I, I, I have a feeling that you could teach a whole podcast on the thoughts on grading from what you may have, may have learned over the years. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so uh, can you just tell us a bit about how you got into your teaching career and uh, sort of your experiences with that? Absolutely. I, I didn't want to be a teacher. I wanted to be a nurse. So my whole my whole plan was um, that I was going to do a, a two-year RN program. Um, that's all of the school that I wanted to do. Um, so my plan was to, to do that and to marry this fella named Kenny Merkley and have like five kids. Um, and that's not what happened. So every time I applied for a nursing program, I was always put on the waiting list. We had a lot of um, competition for very few slots in the nursing programs in, in Utah at the schools at the time. And so as I was um, working on some of those pre-nursing classes, I landed in um, some public health courses. And I was like, oh, this is great. I love this. You know, I can see myself working for the CDC or another organization like that. So I ended up doing my bachelor's degree and had no intentions of doing a master's degree. And my mother and my professor and mentor, Julie Gass, conspired with one another 
and um, convinced me that I really did want to do a master's degree. And so I ended up applying for the master's program and thought that I would be a good teacher. So um, there was a teaching assistantship available at the time and I applied for that and um, got that teaching position. So I had the opportunity to teach a couple of sections of responding to emergencies all on my own. And I, I really loved it. It was um, just fantastic interacting with the students and um, finding new ways to you know, um, create activities and, and engage in all of those kinds of things. And when I finished with my master's program, I actually wanted to work at our local health departments. Um, emergency response and um, bioterrorism were my two um, main topic kind of research areas. And there was a position open at our local health department for a coordinator for emergency preparedness and bioterrorism. Um, and I applied for that job and um, it came down to me and a gentleman who was a retired um, military and had like 30 years in bioterrorism experience. So he got the job, which is totally fair because so fair. Um, and at that point, uh, my mom and Julie conspired yet again and decided that I really needed to get a PhD and I did not want the PhD and I have the PhD. So really I got in to teaching and ended up with two of my degrees because I had a professor and mentor who um, saw the possibilities in me along with my mother and they, they absolutely conspired together to to help me recognize, you know, where I wanted to go in my career. So um, my mom made me do it, Sam. <laughs> thank you, Sister Whitney, for uh, being willing to record an episode today. And thank you to everyone at home for tuning in to today's episode. And we'll see you next week.